on the subject of like auditioning, I mean, that's what Walker did before he got on the bench, right? Like this is of a piece. But I think you mentioned, Patrick, that you have his Wikipedia page open. Yes, let me. And so, and so let's dive into that a little, because before he was on the bench, he was a Kavanaugh clerk when Kavanaugh was on the D.C. circuit. And then he was a Kennedy clerk on the Supreme Court. And when Kavanaugh got accused by Christine Blasey Ford, Walker was on TV more than Avenatti. Oh, every day. Showing up on every place that he could find to announce that it was inconceivable that Kavanaugh would ever do anything like this and that the deep state and the media were all conspiring against this great man. Looking at this Wikipedia page, not feeling great. First off, young, younger than me, don't love it. <laughs> <laughs> and if he's younger than you, yeah. he is my conservative son. I don't know how old Eric is relative to me, but um, Walker was born in 1982. So, yeah. So he's basically Alex P. Keaton. He has like Democrat parents and just grows up a young Republican. Notably, uh-huh. his dad is a judge. So he's got the uh, he was born with a law in his heart. And yes. again, like a little Alex P. Keaton. He's a Republican in like high school. He interviewed Mitch McConnell for a class paper in high school. Well, that's it. That's been his patron. Yeah. McConnell would give himself the coronavirus to get Walker on the Supreme Court. And he would give you the coronavirus for no reason at all. <laughs> There's something about like the ectoplasm surrounding Mitch McConnell that makes me think that he cannot actually carry and transmit the coronavirus. <laughs> it is that it would take another zoonotic leap <laughs> yeah yeah there's like just a layer there that we're not that biologically most creatures are not accustomed to and he's just fine <laughs> when he dies at 250 everybody's gonna be super confused oh my god <laughs> that just that just like the idea of him living that long just actually yeah it sucks i said it out loud of depression just, like a bolt, just a bolt through my body it felt bad <laughs> I'm Charles Starr. Welcome to Hostile Witness, a podcast about law at the end of the world. Patrick Cosmos and Eric Michael are back for episode four in the wake of the Bridgegate decision to talk about the Supreme Court's inexplicable allergy to punishing public corruption. We follow that up by staring into the abyss of Judge Justin Walker's Easter injunction, which saved Christianity from its historical enemy, Kentucky. This is Hostile Witness. Bear with us. Eric, Patrick, thanks for coming back. Everyone ready to talk about Bridgegate? Hot off the presses. Charles, I I think like when this came down, you came crashing into the Twitter DM like the Kool-Aid man. (laughs) (laughs) I was so mad. Even though I never have hope for anything and my psyche has been destroyed by every bit of bad news that the law has handed to me my entire adult life. (laughs) I really spent some time enjoying the fact that there would actually be a penalty for psychotic revenge fantasy of the Christie administration, you know? And and that was just not to be... (laughs) He just strikes me as one of those guys who doesn't get in trouble. I know that's most like powerful people, but he has that specific cherub demeanor of like an evil person who just by sheer dint of who he is, just cannot get in trouble. Just has a force field around him. You know what the only thing he ever got in trouble for was? Hmm. Convicting Jared Kushner's yeah. dad. <laughs> it's like like the one the one good thing he did in his life was put an evil asshole in prison. And his reward for that is Trump shitting on him at every opportunity. The one good deed went punished. Yeah. It's like the aphorism is true. God, I really forgot how funny that was. That was just a constant just like a parade of degradation and it was happening all of the time and it never wasn't funny all of the times that trump forced christy to eat 
the meatloaf at Trump Town, <laughs> at Trump Grill or whatever. I mean, what what uh, you might to refresh my memory because I mean, obviously he's not one of the defendants at issue in in the case we're about to talk about. But how did how did he eventually come out on Bridgegate? Was it just one of those I I never had knowledge? All this was conducted without me knowing kind of things. Yeah, yeah. Christie Christie went full denial, and his Wildenstein, the guy who ended up turning state's evidence, the cooperating witness who pled guilty, went to high school with Christie. And so they'd known each other their whole lives. So everyone always thought of Wildenstein as uh, Christie's like right hand. And he he pulled a very Trumpian. I barely know him. When I was in high school, <laughs> when I was in high school, I was like the cool kid on the baseball team, and he was the guy who kept the box scores and washed our jock straps and <laughs> so we weren't friends he was a hanger on like when Roy Cohn <laughs> when Roy Cohn was diagnosed with AIDS and Trump denied ever having met him <laughs> <laughs> and if I were if I recall there was not enough evidence to convict him because Christie kept his records clean and was able to convince a court not to allow the investigators access to his wife's phone, even though there was some evidence that he was using her phone to mm. contact these people. Yeah, the vaunted don't email my wife defense that we all know. Yes. <laughs> precedent now. Yeah. It's precedent in New Jersey. So here's Bridgegate. To someone who wants to step up and talk about just like a quick Bridgegate recap before we get to the case itself. Oh, I can. Uh, Eric? Yeah. All right, cool. So, I mean, I, I think people remember this from the news, but um, so a de- the deputy chief of staff for Chris Christie, well, he, so he's running for re-election. He wants, you know, broad bipartisan support from the local mayors, Democratic mayor of the town at the base of the George Washington Bridge. I don't remember what the town is because it's Fort Lee, Fort Lee, Lee, New Jersey. That sounds that sounds right. (laughs) So uh, that mayor doesn't want to endorse Chris Christie. And so in in response to that, Chris Christie's deputy chief of staff and also some other people at the Port Authority, they come up with this great scheme of we're going to reduce the number of lanes where people in this town can get on the bridge and go into Manhattan down from three to one. And they they devise this cover-up story that, well, the reason that we're reducing the lanes from three to one is because we're doing a traffic study, which was complete bullshit. And it's 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 not even there, there's no there's no denying whatsoever that it was just a cover for political yeah. retribution. Nobody, right. nobody even pretended for a second at any point when any of this happened or anybody discussed it in terms of the law that it was real. Yeah. Like it didn't even have like the slightest premature being real. Everybody knew. Like, the funny thing was they gave it the patina of being real, right? They actually engaged the Department of Transportation's engineers to do a study. And so for four days, the engineers moved the traffic cones the way it was supposed to be, filed a report on what the effects were, but it went right into the circular file. Yeah, hey, well, you look at that. It made a ton of traffic, you guys. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One of the things that the case says, the Supreme Court case says, is the original plan was just to remove the cones entirely. Yes. Right? So there would be no dedicated traffic from Fort Lee, and the engineers got that request and they were like, if you do this, it'll look like der- a demolition derby. Yeah, well, I know exactly what right? it would look like because I went to India a couple years ago. And the way that people drive like to and from the <laughs> airport or anywhere is that like people literally just cram into any spare gap anywhere. Yeah. And it really drove the point home when we were in Delhi and we were driving to the airport. And they had like one of those, um, you know, rotating neon signs that does all the little messages where you see Amber Alerts and stuff here. And there yeah. was a PSA lit up on the rotating screen that just said lane driving is sane driving because they were making (laughs) a public effort to push people to please god please just drive in the lanes a little bit please it'll just be carnage of side swiping you have to have the lanes and so they did that they put in the lanes and i mean beyond the fact that was bad for the people of Fort Lee. Because Fort Lee had three dedicated lanes on that on-ramp, people would intentionally use the Fort Lee access. 
And so all of those people jammed up Fort Lee itself trying to get on the bridge. Yeah. And so to get back to the case at hand, the Supreme Court said this was fine. Uh <laughs> <laughs> No, so yeah, I mean, the, these these people who orchestrated the scheme, they were charged under federal statutes prohibiting wire fraud and, and basically defrauding a federally funded entity, which the Port Authority is. And the question was whether this whole Bridgegate scheme, which everyone acknowledges was just purely for political retribution purposes. I mean, I think people actually like died because of this, like ambulances couldn't get to, to I, folks. Yeah, I mean, people. It sounds like the entire town came to a standstill, yeah. and like there were a lot of you know uh, consequences that one would expect from unexpectedly turning an entire town into a parking lot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They don't refer to anyone dying, but they did say that an ambulance got stuck in traffic when it was responding to a heart attack call, and the police themselves were having trouble getting through. You know, and I remember, you know, it's rush hour. This is when the school buses are driving around Fort Lee. Oh, yeah. It was the first day of school, it says. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unambiguous that it was done on purpose. And I mean, the the kind of kill shot evidence is the one who proposed it, you know, sends out the email to all of the people who knew about it, though obviously nobody CCs Christie. But he sends it to Baroni, his boss, and <laughs> Kelly, who is the named person on the Supreme Court case. And Kelly replies, time for some traffic in Fort Lee. That was the notorious email that nailed everyone to the wall on how obvious it was that their purpose wasn't intellectual. Yeah, it's, and so so they're convicted in the lower court. And, and the question is whether or not this conduct falls within these federal wire fraud and uh, property fraud statutes, which the Supreme Court says no, because to, to commit fraud under these statutes, the object of your fraud has to be essentially taking money or property. And the Supreme Court said neither of those happened here unanimously. And so right. nine nine zero unanimous, their convictions overturned. And that's when right. and that's when Charles exploded. Yeah, and said, the, and said we're having a pod tonight. The nine <laughs> zero decision, like the fact that it was unanimous, was the brick wall that Charles crashed through as the Kool Aid Man. Yeah. <laughs> so the government's theory of the case here, I mean, and we'll get to all of the precedents that sort of led us to this very stupid place. But the government was boxed in by all the other cases on government corruption and honest services fraud, right? And so what the government felt reduced to was that they had to prove a deprivation of property. And so they proposed two things that the jury and the district court and the Third Circuit were all fine with. Number one, you deprived the government of their right to choose the traffic patterns right basically a, a taking of of the two lanes basically yeah basically but like that's kind of intangible but their tangible uh solution is this is a toll bridge the george washington bridge it's free to go to new jersey all right <laughs> it's always free to go to new jersey but you have to pay to come into new york and so under the normal arrangement, there are three lanes. So if one of the toll booth clerks needs to use the bathroom, the other two are still open, so it doesn't matter. But once you, once you reduce it to only one lane, the clerk can't take a piss for his whole shift. And so now that's a problem that needs a solution. And so the solution to that problem was we're going to pay someone to be on standby for the whole shift who is going to literally do nothing unless the working clerk has to use the bathroom. For four days, they paid for a standby toll booth clerk. So that's the second property deprivation from the government. And the Supreme Court, they were like, that's not good enough mm -hmm. because the object was rat fucking. The waste of money was incidental to the abhorrent but clearly legal, apparently, political revenge. 
like as someone else said to me, uh, Matt Ford was like, there wasn't even a sheepish concurrence, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 That's exactly what we think of this statute. We think that it's, this is settled by the other earlier cases. And so there's nothing at all that we can do about this. And so that's it. I mean, <laughs> did you read the old cases? I, I read the Cleveland case which was referenced in here because the way that the Cleveland case was summarized in the Supreme Court's opinion, I was just like absolutely flabbergasted that that was actually a Supreme Court decision. Uh, you know, the, the one right. the one paragraph summary of Cleveland in this decision, someone in Louisiana who had fraudulently obtained licenses for video poker machines and then was also... Um, trying to bribe state legislators to uh, make favorable um, decisions for the video poker industry. And what this, and, and again, the ones, the one paragraph summary, which made me read the case was the Supreme Court there said that, well, you know, these licenses, when they're in the hands of the government, they're not really property. You know, the, the intangible right of the government to hand out licenses, licenses themselves, which are undeniably property interests for the people who receive them. But when they're still being held onto by the government before they hand them out, you know, they're just like like inventory. They're not really property. Yeah, and it's just right. this, this intangible right for the that where the government can choose who to give a license to is not a property right for purposes of the fraud statute. And I had to read that like five times before it made any sense to me <laughs> whatsoever. But that's yeah, a, about, that's a real case apparently. <laughs> about seventy five percent of the way through this opinion, they embark on like a very psychedelic interpretation of what counts as money and value and like where it goes and like what difference it makes and it's you can't, you can't like really weird you can't own property man yeah, you, yeah. no <laughs> it's all fiat man yeah, and don't... so and so he obtained the licenses themselves by fraud and i'm sure that there is some statute that covers that kind of fraudulent activity he was prosecuted under the federal mail fraud statute and they were like well you it can't be this like cleveland just says it's not property and so sorry you didn't violate the property statute and that just is it's like it's just so funny because i don't think for a second the prosecutors thought that that could happen. So that's Cleveland, which was just bad. And so that sets the stage in, uh, and I think when was, I guess Cleveland was 2000. Yeah. So that even follows McNally. McNally was the one in 1987, which was, I think, the really bad one, right? McNally was the worst. Howard Hunt was the insurance commissioner and when he gets appointed insurance commissioner for the state, he goes to the main, like, insurer for the state. And he goes, here's the deal. I will let you keep being the insurer, but you have to give kickbacks to all of these other insurers, including a company that I own. So he pleads guilty for, like, various fraud and kickback things. But one of the other defendants in the case, McNally, was charged for mail fraud for helping set all of this up while he was a government attorney. And the theory of the case was that by directing the insurance proceeds improperly, he deprived the government of his honest services. Right. Because the government didn't pay any more. Just the insurance company got less and all of these other insurance companies, including Hunt's, benefited. And so the theory was you have violated the honest services that you were supposed to provide your employer. And every circuit had held the same way, that this intangible property was a violation of the mail fraud statute. And the Supreme Court, seven to two, Justice White, in another really shitty opinion, if you listen to episode three, you can hear me talk about his terrible <laughs> opinion in Apodaca, but White, in a really terrible opinion, says, 
No. Honest services doesn't count. There's no such thing as honest services fraud. Because he the state paid the same amount of money, nobody lost anything. And Stevens and O'Connor wrote a dissent, and they were like, that's obviously not true. <laughs> <laughs> like, all of all of the judges and any sane person who looks at this knows that self-dealing has to be covered under this statute. The state didn't lose any money, but Hunt clearly benefited from his self-dealing, and everyone who participates in the self-dealing absolutely should be covered by this. Yeah, and so after McNally, where the court says that, well, honest services isn't part of the statute, Congress immediately (laughs) amends the statute (laughs) to say that this statute includes honest services fraud. And then years later in Skilling, which is the case um, revolving Enron, and Enron's bankruptcy and the fraud that was committed in terms of boosting the value of the company to its shareholders fraudulently, the Supreme Court says, yeah, well, it's still, I mean, we know Congress amended the law, but it's we're still honest services fraud still isn't a thing. <laughs> right. Skilling was so bad. Like uh, that was the other one. And skilling was basically 9-0. Also, there are multiple opinions and there are dissents. But for the important part of it, like skilling, the skilling case had two issues. One of them was whether he got a fair trial because of all the pretrial publicity and the majority said, no, that's not true. Your trial was fair. And there were a couple of dissents on that. But the second issue was the honest services fraud. And it was basically 9-0 that on honest services fraud, the only thing that counts is bribes and kickbacks, right? Because there were these multiple strings of honest services fraud cases. Some of them were self-dealing and some of them were bribes and kickbacks and some of them were other kinds of intangible benefits. And the skilling case specifically, it wasn't government honest services fraud, but his the allegation was that he basically pump and dumped, mm-hmm. right? He lied, to, he lied to the public to pump the Enron stock price and then sold like $200 million worth of Enron shares. God, the good old days. The course of, you guys remember what? how chill things were back then? These were the good yeah. old days. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, now that stock wouldn't be worth anything anyway. <laughs> they said that by lying and directing Enron to do all of these improper transactions that artificially boosted Enron's earnings, he, for his own benefit, he deprived Enron of honest services. And so all of that, they said no. The honest services statute only applies to bribes and kickbacks. And since that wasn't this, and they squared it with McNally too, because they looked back and they said, well, you could look at McNally, where we said there was no such thing as honest services fraud at all. But if you look back at McNally, that was basically a, a bribe and a kickback case. So we're fitting with Congress's response to our stupid decision in McNally, because this is the spirit of what Congress uh, meant us to do. I think skilling is it's particularly troubling for uh, Patrick and I, because... Jeffrey Skilling's older brother, Tom, is a beloved meteorologist in the Chicago yes, area. Absolutely. He's just this, this jolly man who loves cold fronts and he loves to show, you know, fan photos of, you know, blooming flowers and things like that. And he just loves the weather. And his name's, been, a, dra- his name's been dragged through the mud and is forever associated yeah. with this awful honest services opinion. So it's, it's really disheartening for Chicagoans. Yeah. And I don't yeah. know, I don't know if anybody knows about the weather here in Chicago, but it's not great from time to time <laughs> and having this absolute just avatar of meteorological like integrity on our television and on our news feeds and everything means a lot to us so this this was hard to endure i'd sort of forgotten about that but i feel i feel like you may have a similar thing going on with rick and skip bayless yes where where rick is your local chicago icon of cultural appropriation <laughs> Whereas Skip Bayless is a moron, yeah. non-parel. That's a little bit different because I don't know the relationship between the skillings, but I do know for a fact that Rick Bayless does not fucking like Skip Bayless. <laughs> yeah, yes. Very strange. <laughs> I, I, I had a joke when Skip and Shannon Sharp got their ESPN show that 
Rick Bayless and Sterling Sharp should start their own show called the, <laughs> called the Better Half. <laughs> what were we talking um, about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. I actually looked at what happened because the result of skilling was a remand to the Fifth Circuit because they threw out the honest services conviction. But he was also convicted of securities fraud, and he was also convicted of conspiracy to commit fraud. And so the Supreme Court kicked it back to the Fifth Circuit to decide if the conspiracy count could stand. And they said yes. They deemed that the honest services mistake was harmless error because the evidence of securities fraud was so compelling. They were like, no, 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 harmless error. You're still guilty of conspiracy. Uh, and the Obama DOJ knocked 10 years off his sentence. He had originally been convicted and sentenced to 24 years. And after taking out the honest services fraud, and after Skilling spent $8 billion on attorneys, he won 10 years off his sentence, which then got knocked off by two more for whatever reason. So he got out like either last year or the year before. Feels great. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah. I think the, the moral of the, the Bridgegate Supreme Court decision is that this, this sort of only fit into the, the fraud the federal fraud statute if these people had gotten together and said all right here's what we're going to do we're going to shut down two out of the three lanes of the bridge so that the port authority has to pay an extra toll booth operator that would have been a federal crime <laughs> if the purpose yeah, if exactly. the purpose was to get the port authority <laughs> to pay overtime but do it right. doing it for political retribution um and right. crippling a city for four days not right. Not not a violation. Yeah, and so like when I freaked out on Twitter about this, I had one guy fighting with someone else in my mentions. That's uh, my favorite about this, uh, and he kept being like, "Oh, so you don't like the law? <laughs> like this is just so they, you know, the Supreme Court was just following the law, except the Supreme Court has been fucking this law up since the nineteen seventies. Like they keep." They keep restricting what corruption is. I mean, even in the even in the McDonald case, you know, the former governor of Virginia, who had someone giving him and his wife, and he and by the way, McDonald, a uh, very proto wife guy, because he tried to blame all of the gift acceptance on his wife. <laughs> so this one person who wanted to do business with the state kept giving gifts to the O'Donnell family. Then O'Donnell referred him to someone who actually could be in a position to help him. And in McDonald, they're like, that doesn't count either. Like that's, that is an intangible benefit and it is not making an introduction to someone in in your administration, even though you are their boss, and even though even though every everyone who works in government knows that when the governor makes that introduction, he wants you to do something about it. Yeah, yeah, that's not an official act. Yeah, and McDon McDonald, it was was there a quid? Yes. However, was there also a quo? Also, yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but the quo was a meeting, and that's not that's not enough. This is something I'm curious to get your opinions on. What do you think? So we have 40 some years of jurisprudence that is like remarkably unanimous for the Supreme Court, if not, you know, nine and no like here, but seven two. it's bipartisan and it's unpopular. Like all of these decisions <laughs> seem on their face bad and like objectionable to normal people. So ideologically, what do you think is going on here? I wish I knew. Yeah, because like, I, can't I can't begin to give – normally I'm cynical enough to like find a through line and be like, oh, well, this benefits X. But this is really weird. Like what? what is what is Justice Sotomayor doing like signing on to this – this Bridgegate is, opinion, like right. just like what's what's the benefit, as as you put it, Charles, or someone else put it, what's what's the benefit of not even just like a concurrence just to say face? Here is my very generous to my ideological priors view of this. All of the usual Supreme Court villains just want to exempt white collar crime from prosecution. <laughs> and so that is what I think of them. And to be generous to my more closely allied justices, 
I think the answer is something like, I mean, is something closer to a more general principle about statute, like criminal statutory interpretation, like Ginsburg and Sotomayor, uh, who may be predisposed to lenity in the interpretation of statutes more broadly, apply it here too. In the Skilling case, what they found ultimately, the reason, because I, like I said, there were a lot of opinions in Skilling, and what Skilling said was that if you didn't limit the honest services statute to bribes and kickbacks, then it was void for vagueness. Because going back to McNally, what the Supreme Court has always said they were worried about was that the statute would then become a roving inquisition of political lying, which is too rife to be illegal, (laughs) right? Like if every time a politician lied about why they were doing what they were doing, then all of them would be in jail. And while I don't see the downside <laughs> that I mean, is their logic it doesn't have to be jail though we can imagine a better future you could just get to throw a tomato at them <laughs> right but you have to figure out how that fits into the sentencing guidelines, yeah. even in an advisory way but that so that's i mean that's what i think what was interesting about skilling was Ginsburg said that the honest services statute was void for vagueness, and she saved the statute by limiting it to bribes and kickbacks. Kennedy, Scalia, and Thomas only concurred in the judgment because they would have thrown it out entirely for vagueness and made Congress pass a statute again defining honest services as bribes and kickbacks. They were comfortable with the idea that Congress could pass the statute, but they were uncomfortable with the idea that a judge would do something rational. (laughs) It's basically 9-0, even in skilling, that the kind of honest services fraud that they tried to convict skilling of, and now that they tried to convict Kelly and Baroni of, like the Supreme Court seems really cool with open corruption, open political revenge being non-justiciable yeah, they're, in some Yeah, they're way. prison abolitionists about this. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm never not going to be mad. <laughs> because they keep undoing, like you said, it's bipartisan, they keep undoing what everyone tries to do, which is to make politicians and rich people not corrupt. Yeah. The prosecutors and judges across the country tried to do it. And then in McNally, they're like, you can't. And so Congress is like, wait a second. (laughs) Yes, we can. And then in Cleveland, they're like, no. Yeah. (laughs) You can't. And then in Skilling, they said, no, you can't again. Then in Bridgegate, they said, no, you can't again. And it's like they keep stopping anyone from prosecuting people for really naked forms of corruption. It occurs to me, the way that all these opinions feel designed in a lab with fact patterns to make normal people mad, this series of cases is like the only thing that bears out the notion that Supreme Court justices are nominated for life to insulate them from political concerns. It's the... Like, yeah, this is a fully apolitical realm of just them pissing everybody off all the time everyone but rat yeah. fuckers yeah they love it yeah no uh no defendants are big fans of this but yes yeah, yeah. but i mean look i'm usually pro defendant on these things but i want these people yeah. like especially because the flynn thing came down today and i don't even have time to process or talk about it but i'm fully accelerationist on the weight of the all-powerful state coming down like a hammer Mm -hmm. for the powerful themselves because you can't make exceptions for them that you're not making for other people. And so unless they start getting really punished, I have no interest in seeing any mercy for them at all. Well, hey, one of those guys gets punished, call me up because that's going to be sick as hell. I'm really eager to see it.
So, so our second, our second topic for today is the the case. I guess is a little uh, not stale, but not at least it's not ripped from the headlines of today. But well, Judge Justin Walker had his hearing yesterday to get pro- get promoted to the D.C. Circuit because of his incredible work in his 12 minutes on the Western District of Kentucky. <laughs> so we might as well talk about the only thing he did uh, in the Western District of Kentucky, which was to steal a case out of the wheel. And uh, <laughs> that is the speculation, but to steal a case out of the assignment wheel so that he could issue an injunction against the Louisville uh, stay-at-home order on Easter. Yeah, this is some real shit. <laughs> the The fact pattern's pretty straightforward. There is this um, this church, like a mega church called On Fire Christian Center, and they want to have uh, Easter, but, you know, we have uh, the coronavirus happening. And the mayor of Louisville, Kentucky, says we have the coronavirus happening. and then the church files a temporary restraining order against you know the governor trying to uh, or the the mayor rather trying to you know have easter they uh file this on saturday before on friday on friday and they friday and friday yeah the friday before easter and on the third day they got to have their mass again (laughs) which is sick okay so this this is this opinion is issued on saturday yeah so he writes this in what twenty four hours? Like this is no, why he this writes is my this conspiracy. with gritted teeth in forty five minutes, and it's someone else's job to footnote it. That's how this works. I think my tinfoil conspiracy is that he knew that this was coming, and he got the case on purpose, and he had this written in advance. Can I prove this? No. Am I liable uh, to be sued for this? Uh, certainly. Um, <laughs> but because because I have, and I'm disclosing that I have literally no evidence of this other than my animus, I am probably protected, as it is just my opinion that he did this corruptly. The mayor issues this order because, I mean, on Fire says that they're going to do a car service. Yes. It's going to, everyone's going to stay in their cars and they are going to do uh, a service of everyone in the parking lot with loudspeakers. And the mayor's response is, we never said it was illegal. We said, don't do it. And like all of the Walker opinion comes from like one article in the Louisville Courier Journal. All of it are just quotes from the mayor in the article that he just uses really incendiary language to describe. Oh yeah, it's worth noting that they file this TRO on Friday and they don't hear back from the mayor. Well, they gave the mayor of Louisville, the city of Louisville had like less than 24 hours to respond before Walker issued the TRO. And he says, you know, oh, and they didn't even, they didn't even respond to the letter. On Fire wrote to them, uh, he certified that he sent a letter yesterday, (laughs) but didn't hear anything back. And so that's why I don't even need to, he says, providing notice to Louisville before entering the TRO would be impractical. Yeah, this judge got left unread. He's looking at his phone. (laughs) Like, and all of it is constantly apocalyptic. The reason why the Louisville mayor was worried about the parking lot service where everyone stays in their cars is because this wasn't the first parking lot service. Mm-hmm. And at the prior parking lot service, no one stayed in their fucking cars. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Everyone is out shaking hands and hogging. Well, hey, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to spoil this one. But there's. I've got an article open right here about this one. And uh, yeah, that basically all still happens here. Exactly. Walker just looks at the affidavit from On Fire and he says they swear everyone's going to stay in their car. So I have to issue this TRO. And the mayor is threatening by having like one of the things the mayor said is that we're going to have police officers there to maintain order and enforce the social distancing guidelines. And they're going to take people's license plates down and follow up with health officials, which is basically 
we're going to, we know you're just going to keep coughing at each other's faces. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to be prepared to contact trace all of you psychos so you don't kill everybody. And Walker treats that, even when he quotes the part where he says, follow up with health officials, like the jackbooted thugs are going to shoot everyone who steps out of their car to use the bathroom. Yeah, that's that's like the really phenomenal thing about this, again, this 20 page I, I read the article, which is cited as the illegal <laughs> executive order. I kept reading this opinion. I'm like, what? I'm like, what? When are we going to see what the, what the mayor actually issued? And it's just, it's literally like a news article that is summarizing yeah. his press conferences. And as you said, you know, Judge Walker here gives them this this really um, negative or uh, you know malevolent spin to it. The the news article that's cited, I'm quoting from it. It's that. Mayor Greg Fisher is imploring, begging, <laughs> requesting that churches who are planning services on Easter do not go forward with those plans. The mayor says the police will attend to collect license plate information so that government health department officials can follow up with attendees to share information about the coronavirus. And this, this is the so-called illegal executive action by the mayor. Um, and it's, it's really interesting, too, because like when you when you read this, um, it's actually it's it's not even the mayor's order the the governor of Kentucky has issued an executive order banning uh, gatherings of 10 or more people. And right. the, the, the mayor is just basically saying that means you can't have a car church service of more than 10 people. And like the attorney general gets involved because the attorney general is saying, well, you know, it doesn't really apply that that doesn't really apply to car gatherings and so that's fine. But the mayor is like, it's still a gathering of more than 10 people. It's the governor. And so it's just like this mismatch was in the state of Kentucky where it's like there's an actual executive order issued by the governor. And yet they're suing the mayor over statements he made in a press conference that were then published in the news article. It's just it's it's insane. Walker tries to square that because he says, well, I'm not deciding it based on what the governor said the order was supposed to because both the governor and the AG, I think, said like it doesn't apply to car services. It matters what Louisville has said they're going to do, but there's no order from Louisville. <laughs> and all the mayor said was, please don't do this. We're going to prepare for the fact that you are a Petri dish. And, yeah. and that wasn't enough. He's like, clearly Louisville suggesting that they may eventually have to follow up on you trying to kill each other <laughs> is itself uh, clearly unconstitutional. And, and so just thinking of, of the words in that news article, the mayor is, is begging people not, not to go to church. The first line of Judge Walker's opinion, on Holy <laughs> Thursday, an American mayor criminalized the communal celebration of Easter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Mayor F Mayor Fisher, the bad guy from Cars Four, made it illegal for cars to go to church. <laughs> this that sentence is the one that this court never expected to see outside the pages of a dystopian novel, or perhaps the pages of The Onion. Which, by the way, that does not sound like an Onion. Or no, no, not, at, not no. at all. If that that might be actionable by The Onion, if anything. Yes. <laughs> And then he inflates the request that people not go to church to an order that the cops have been told to shoot on sight yeah, the, anyone the, the, with a Bible. That the Gestapo made about church, about car church. <laughs> and so then the, the next three pages of the opinion are about how people have died for religion. I just opened up my computer because some of my notes are on my um, paper and some are on my computer. And I just mm -hmm. had to double check the page numbering because on page three, he starts with an American mayor criminalized the communal celebration of Easter. And then he starts talking about St. Paul and like the pilgrims. And that's still on page three. And my note says on page four, I started dissociating. <laughs> <laughs> but that's because he writes a full page about the pilgrims. Yeah. And fleeing religious persecution. And he cites like to all this scholarship on the Puritans and the Mayflower. And it gets down to on how how important religion is. And then, of course, 
pockets of society have not always lived up to our nation's Yeah, ideas. this is really, I joked about this before, but this is where it starts feeling like evangelical drunk history. Like, it just goes completely <laughs> off the rails right here. The one part of this that before he, like, really goes off the rails, so, I mean, well, I mean, he is off the rails at this point. But he's got this whole paragraph about how just summarizing religious persecution in the United States. And then at one point, he's got a line here where he calls out Hugo Black, who was oh, yeah. who was a Supreme Court justice who was formerly a member of the KKK. And he's like, that's a, just, you know, think of how absurd that is that a former KKK member was on the Supreme Court. And also Robert Byrd, who was also a former <laughs> KKK member, was a, the majority leader of the U.S. Senate for a period of time. And for like two seconds, I was like, oh, Judge Walker's cool. And then I was like, yeah. I had to like shake my head. I'm like, wait, no, 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 no. Like, <laughs> he's not, he's not cool. <laughs> it's really clear what he's doing all the time. He takes, I mean, Hugo Black was a civil rights pioneer on the Supreme Court. He was, he was one of the like vanguard. He was KKK when he was in his youth. His disavowal of it is only marginally convincing, like because he he was a member of the KKK and then he quit when he like ran for political office. And then there's evidence that he may have rejoined, but there's also evidence that the KKK only said he rejoined to kind of rat fuck him and ruin his political <laughs> career. So it's kind of all over the place on that. But Hugo Black is generally regarded as one of the civil rights lions of the Supreme Court, whether or not he held racism in his heart. But it's really important for conservatives to always point out that he was in the KKK in the same way that Robert Byrd yeah, back when it was wrong. like renounced his youthful and I mean, you don't have to believe him, but his career after that was also being really pro-civil rights for his, like, what, 98-year career in the Senate? <laughs> like, I think he served with Henry Clay or something. And so he also did a lot on civil rights. And so it's embarrassing for people who believe in civil rights that he was in the KKK. But Dinesh D'Souza loves that mm -hmm. Robert Byrd was in the KKK because they use that kind of citation to discredit the Civil Rights Act. And so that's what Justice Walker is doing. Yeah. He also includes a reference to the Blaine Amendments, mm -hmm. which I talk about a little in episode three, and he throws that in there to make sure that you know that he wants to invalidate the church and state separation that stops states from funding religious schools. Yeah, I don't want to lose track of the fact, as much as this is like a fever-brained mishmash of historical touch points, this is the most literal definition of virtual, virtue signaling I've ever seen before. This oh, is yeah. like every signifier you could think of. There's, if, if you just scan with your eyes this opinion, it has more capital letters because everything is a proper noun, because everything is a reference to something specific everywhere you look. He does. Like you talk about signifiers, he refers to the Hosanna Tabor case from a few, uh, from a few years ago, and he says... It was not long ago, for example, that the government told the Supreme Court that it can prohibit a church from choosing its own minister, which really does sound very ominous. But when you read the facts of Hosanna Tabor, she was like a kindergarten teacher at a church school yeah. who they fired for having narcolepsy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> She took disability, and then they replaced her while she was on disability. And then when she wanted to come back and enforce her rights under the ADA, they fired her and then argued that the firing was covered by the ministerial exception to the ADA, which allows the church to choose its ministers. And so the fight was over whether this kindergarten and elementary school teacher who twice a year would lead a church service counts as a minister or whether she counted as a teacher. Yeah. They weren't asking the Catholic Church to hire Reverend Lovejoy. Also, spoilers, 9-0, the court says, yeah, she's a minister. And then there's a concurrence from Thomas where he's like, they shouldn't have tests for who's a minister. It's probably <laughs> fine. The other thing about this Walker opinion is the, the one thing that he really can't get over, which, I mean, if I'm going to be generous, I this is the one part of the opinion where I kind of see the semblance of a point is he's obsessed with the fact that Kentucky, uh, the mayor of Louisville is saying that no one can, that there can be no car church 
but that there are still car liquor stores in in Louisville. Yeah. <laughs> he he makes this point four or five times that like you can't you can't ban car church and still allow car liquor stores. Now I know Patrick, you had mentioned that there was a news article saying that what everyone thought would happen here would happen that people at car church got out of their cars, which makes it different than people driving up at a liquor store. And and you know perhaps that might have been a response that Louisville would have provided had they well, been offered any opportunity whatsoever to respond to the complaint <laughs> before the temporary restraining order was issued. Right. You know, well, I will I will say there's a at the end of that article, there's this line at the end, and I can relate to it a lot. As the sermon continued, Hess, who's this person at the ceremony, held a phone out the window to record. She bobbed her head with the music and smiled as Salvo preached about the resurrection of Jesus. Neither she or her mother wore masks to cover their face and neither seemed to worry much about the spreading pandemic. I'm not afraid, Hess said, because I am covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is literally what I said when I walked into the beer store down the street the other day. So. <laughs> The comparison, and he makes it over and over and over again, Ben. The perfect analogy here wouldn't be Easter. It'd be something like Ash Wednesday, where you show up and there's like a quick transaction, and then you get out of there. Not everybody's right. chilling out in a parking lot together, just there in their cars, technically, right. hopefully. I, I don't know. I would, Patrick, I was raised Catholic. There's there's no quick transactions <laughs> no, that's fair. That's you got to go to the like the the early mass is long and the late mass is long. But if you go to like the ten thirty one, it's normally pretty quick. They get you in and out. So he makes that comparison over and over, and it really does sound like drive time conservative radio. Yeah, and that's, you can you can get a beer, but you can't get the blood of Christ. Well, that's funny. There's a line in here, and this is this goes back to the Catholic thing because it's what I thought was it. Like I know this guy's evangelical, but that's the most Catholic sentence I've ever read before. And it's on page thirteen, and it's supposed to be this kicker at the end of a paragraph, and it just says, "But if beer is quote unquote essential, so is Easter." And I yeah. feel like I could high five my dad about this sentence. He'd be like, yeah. <laughs> uh, Judge Walker says stop snitching mm -hmm. because there was a point where Fisher said something like, if you see someone violating social distancing guidelines, contact a public official. And he treats that like a gang leader yeah. enforcing mm -hmm. like a code. Yeah. Scrutiny much? <laughs> He also, by the way, I really shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't point this out, but he talked about an order to disperse and he spelled it, uh, D-I-S-B-U-R-S-E, <laughs> which, which is what happens yeah. when you write, <laughs> when you write of like a fevered opinion well, in like 24 hours and only use spell check because there are no there are no red squiggles under disperse well in order to disperse with a b is also what this opinion is relative to all those people sharing the virus at church so <laughs> the, the other thing about this opinion is because he goes through you know this is a, a first amendment case multiple times in this opinion he talks about how the coronavirus and state officials trying to protect people from the coronavirus he says it's it's a state interest of like the absolute highest order he acknowledges mm -hmm. that like this is super important but you know just finds that what what the mayor has done through again with no actual executive action whatsoever just just having press conferences he finds that what the mayor has done is unconstitutional i looked it up jefferson county kentucky as of right now has more confirmed cases than guatemala which is 17 million people this this one county in kentucky has more cases than guatemala by like Ugh. by like several hundred uh, and so it's just God. it's just like on that i will read you my favorite two sentence string in the opinion <laughs> Admittedly, the record as it stands is sparse and one-sided <laughs> because he didn't allow Louisville to respond. But in that limited record, there isn't any evidence that On Fire's parking lot will prove more dangerous than the countless other parking lots that remain open. Again, because Louisville was not allowed to introduce the pictures of everyone hugging each other at last week's service. Well, you got to hand it to On Fire's counsel here. They did not make the classic mistake of when you're filing for a temporary restraining order of presenting the other side's argument. They, did, they didn't come to Judge Walker and say, look, man, there's you're, you're an umpire. You call balls and strikes. There's good arguments on both sides. Here's the reason why. Here, here's what, the, what Louisville would say. Uh, but here's our argument, and we'll let 
you decide. You know, they didn't do that. They just came in with their facts, and Judge Walker decided on those facts. It was it was master master class litigation. <laughs> I don't think Louisville would have done anything different. Even after this order, I think they still had police there to try to maintain whatever amount of order they could. And they still probably contact traced them. I mean, like if you were to read, I don't know, the last five pages of this opinion that's like the prongs of the TRO and could like redact from your brain everything you know contextually about how these people actually act, then you're like, yeah, you know what? Let them have their religious service. They're just in their cars. (laughs) Right? It's just that like, there's a lot of subtext working here and it's working very hard. This is... But you also have to redact from your brain that there was never actually an order. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's true too. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the whole thing is phony. This is in the NBA All-Star game when, like, a player passes to themselves off the backboard for an alley-oop. And we're, like, (laughs) we're the nerds on Twitter arguing about whether that counts as a double dribble or traveling or not. I believe we're closer to Rock and Jock, (laughs) (laughs) where a pro allows Justin Bieber to dribble between (laughs) his legs. And meanwhile, I don't know if you saw the last footnote. Oh, no, Because the sentence... I was busy looking at the back-to-back footnotes on page 14, where he cites to one of the books of the gospel, followed by, like, a Greek New Testament analysis. So I missed whatever footnote you're talking about, because I was sitting (laughs) agog at that one for a full five minutes straight. The last... It's another double footnote. (laughs) Because the last two sentences of the last... This is the last paragraph of the opinion. But for the men and women of On Fire, Christ's sacrifice isn't about the logic of this world, nor is their Easter Sunday celebration. The reason they will be there for each other and their Lord is the reason they believe he was and is there for us. For them, for all believers, quote, it isn't a matter of reason. Finally, it is a matter of love. Two footnotes. Mm -hmm. Footnote one is Robert Bolt, a man for all seasons. Footnote two is just his initials. And I believe the initials of his clerks, like Caravaggio (laughs) signing his masterwork. Yeah, I guess it's technically true. (laughs) Do you think he made all of his clerks, like, say it, say the line so that I can, (laughs) that I can cite you? (laughs) It's gotta be real. Say it. Say the line. And, and I, like, I just have this feeling that PBB is like Paul Bernstein, who's just like, oh, (laughs) jeez. Oh, Come on, man. The good news is that this 20-page sermon, which that's the only thing it can uh-huh. be described <laughs> as. It's, it's a, I mean, like, with all kidding aside, this, this is a sermon that is explicitly endorsing Christianity. That's what it is. There's some um, Mormon stuff yeah. in there, too. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. But the, the good news is that this will probably be the last opinion that Judge Walker writes for the District of Western Kentucky. Um, because he's soon to be for life a DC Circuit appellate judge. <laughs> yeah. He... Oh, I guess no, not until September. Griffith Griffith isn't stepping down until September. That's but true. They, but yeah, so he may have enough time to do something else stupid. Yeah, a big gl- a big glow up court. for our homie. Yeah, and so f- fans yeah. of the fans of the pod will remember episode one where we talked about. I think it was episode one or, or two, but we talked about the Fifth Circuit and uh, James, Judge James Aho. So I'm I'm yeah. kind of feeling like a kind of like a, a brewing bird magic rivalry here between Walker and Ho <laughs> for which which one of these two will be the one to take uh the next Supreme Court seat. Both of them having yeah. spent, you know, less than two years on the federal bench. Like which one of these like the, the opinions that these two are gonna be spitting out, they're gonna be they're gonna be hot fire. Yeah. I mean, everyone is already saying that all of these guys, the two of them, I think Duncan is another Fifth Circuit judge, but everyone keeps writing these audition yeah. things. And I have an, you know, I, like, reading through this, I have an ominous prediction about how all this ends. The Hobby Lobby case, int- I think it was Hobby Lobby, introduced the notion that comes up here and comes up in passing all over the place about um, honestly held religious beliefs that wasn't there yeah. before. and. I think that's like an end run around what we've seen of all this like trolling from like the Church of Satan and stuff for a really long time. That yeah. if you can get the Supreme Court to go on record about what counts as like an honestly held religious belief versus a, uh, you yeah. know. Well, I will say I would I would embrace the Supreme Court 
and I say this as an atheist, I don't talk about it much because any atheist who talks about it a lot deserves to be uh, put in a veal pen yeah, for a, the rest of their yeah, life. It's a bad look. Um, but, but that said, I would love for the Supreme Court to come down like a ton of bricks and declare that pastafarianism is illegal. <laughs> I, I would love to see his noodly appendage banned forever. Man, you truly do got to hear both sides. <laughs> Once again, the law moves too fast for my podcast. While I was editing the segment on Judge Walker, a similar case brought by the Maryville Baptist Church to allow socially distant church services was decided by the Sixth Circuit. Because the judges, all Republican appointees, are not explicitly auditioning for the Supreme Court or a Fox sinecure, even though the result was the same, it's from an entirely different judicial universe. It's a straightforward free exercise claim that holds that the Kentucky stay-at-home order simply exempted too many businesses to exclude religious services that are practicing social distancing without violating the free exercise clause. And it does it without the histrionics about curbside liquor pickup. I don't know if this reckons with the way that people actually act in theoretically socially distant environments, but at least it's a sane way of approaching the topic. Thank you to Eric Michael and Patrick Cosmos for joining me on this episode, to Dan Parshall for sound engineering, and Mike Wiebe, Riverboat Gamblers, and Patrick Cosmos for the music. I'm Charles Starr. This is Hostile Witness. <laughs>